Thank you, Pastor Steve. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good to see all of you here on this uh, Memorial Day weekend. And we certainly want to give a salute to our, our, uh, our men and women who through the years have given their lives all over the world uh, the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom to be here today. Um, I thought about, uh, you know, um, the, the message today. I'm really excited about the word that I believe the Lord has given me. And uh, I'll prophesy, you judge. <laughs> That's what the word says. <laughs> So you will judge it. I, I was reminded uh, uh, years ago a guy left the church and uh, one of his complaints was that my preaching was too deep. <laughs> and I, I think I told him, it's not that I'm so deep, I'm just not clear. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I was reminded of, uh, there's a preacher that I kind of uh, really, uh, kind of a long distance mentor, someone I really admired was a guy named uh, Jack Hayford, years ago, used to pastor a church on the way in Van Nuys, California. And, and Jack was famous for, for inventing new big words. Uh, and one day he's talking to a group of pastors and their wives, and he's talking about the sin, the sin of contemporaneity. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, what he was talking about was the sin of doing something just because it's contemporary or popular, you know, going with all the trends and all that sort of thing. And a guy was sitting there, and he turns to his wife. He's the one who relayed the story. He said, he, tell, he says to his wife, what's contemporaneity? <laughs> and she goes, I don't know, and I don't care. If Jack says it's a sin, you, can, you <laughs> repent. <laughs> so <laughs> if I get too deep for you, just repent. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, good news, Carla Correa's home, and, amen, and after having that amazing eight-hour surgery that became a five-hour surgery, and open heart, open lung, it's a, an amazing surgery, uh, that, uh, and she's home, and, and as far as I know, she's doing good today, we'll, we'll check. Uh, also, when, let's give a shout-out to Judy Matan, who's watching from home right now. And Judy's not doing so well, but her spirits are great. I've been with her a couple of times this week and her family. So uh, she's watching right now. Why don't we just give a, she will hear your applause. We don't have a camera set up so we can see the audience necessarily. But uh, would you just give a huge round of applause for Judy Matan right now? Hi, Judy. We love you. Okay, we're in our third uh, sermon in this series, Your Friend, Your Foe, Your Choice, and we've talked a lot about friendship with God, and we've also talked about the foe, which ultimately is the devil, Satan, whatever name you want to give him. There are two or three names in the Bible. Um, but today, I want to I talk about you, uh, and I'm going to call this sermon Dethroning Your Divine Self. That sounds exciting. Uh, aren't you really excited about kicking yourself? in the seat of the pants today. How many of you excited about that? Charles Swindoll said years ago, if I kicked the person in the seat of the pants who gave me the most trouble, I wouldn't be able to sit down for a week. <laughs> However, this is the idea that the most noble thing I could possibly say is that I am my own best friend. You probably heard that. You might have even said that. I am my own best friend. Uh, I want to counter that today that you are not your own best friend. There's a better friend than you, for you. I, 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 
I want to talk about the importance, you know, by the way, we believe in the importance of, uh, I'm going to say a bunch of things today that I'm not going to qualify, but uh, Pastor Dennis Burrell and Don are here this morning, let's give them a hand, and um, Pastor Dennis is going to preach in two weeks, and he's going to correct all the heresy that I produced today, seriously. <laughs> um, we believe in we believe in, in, in self worth, self esteem, self care, the importance of a well defined sense of self. There's no question though that God's greatest competition for his supremacy in my life is myself. I'm gonna talk to you later in this message about how culture has normalized the enthronement of self as not only acceptable man, but mandatory, but uh I want to show you from a little video clip, if you think the whole problem is culture, and sometimes I am the king of whining about culture, and I study, as you know, I study culture a lot, and I talk about culture a lot, and, and so I, I, I believe we need to call out the sins of culture, but if you think this problem of self-centeredness and selfishness and self-enthronement and self-aggrandizement and self-deification, if you think that came from the culture, you're wrong. It comes from deep within your soul. So I want to, to give you an illustration, I want to show you a video of a toddler who illustrates the assertion and the lifting up of self. So play the video. Lily, I just watched you touch Jude's food. Yes, you did. You touched Jude's food. Yes, you did touch the food. No, I didn't touch the food. Did you touch Jude's food? No, I yes. didn't touch the food. You touched Jude's food. I just watched you do it. I didn't touch the food. Yes, you did touch his food. No, no, I didn't touch the food. You touched his food. Were you playing in Jude's food? <laughs> you touched the food. <laughs> you did touch the food. <laughs> you did touch his food. I watched you touch it. Daddy watched you touch it. You touched the food. No, I didn't touch the food. You didn't touch the food. No, I didn't touch the food. You did touch the food. No, I didn't touch the food. What's You did it with your right hand, didn't you? No, I didn't touch the food. Are you? Don't yell at me. You I didn't touch the food. No, I didn't touch the food. You better shut it down. You did touch the food. So, so something, something happened to the human soul uh, way before Karl Marx and way before critical theory and, and way before Sigmund Freud. Something happened to the human soul 
And I'm going to take you back, and you already know where I'm going with this. We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 3, because this is where it all started. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Crafty, circle that word in your mind at least. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we, might, we may not eat from any fruit of the, from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly, uh, and, and the serpent said, you will certainly not die, uh, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. Now, we're going to jump over, we'll we'll refer back to that again this morning, but we'll jump over to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25, that says, There is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. Uh, Then there's Isaiah chapter 5, verse 21, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. See, uh, the, the devil's words to Eve, it was very subtle. And it was a very subtle half-truth. Because I have found no evidence that humans, we humans, really know good and evil. We really understand what is good and what is evil. But he didn't really say that they would understand good and evil. He said, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, and my interpretation may not be 100% correct, but the way I see it, is, is there's something about that the devil was really, what, what he was really saying is you will think you know everything. You will act like you know everything. You will act like your feelings, your emotions, and you will act like your perceptions are correct. And uh, have you ever heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect? The Dunning-Kruger effect is something psychologists have, have discovered that the more un informed a person is and the more ignorant they are the more they assert that they're right it's an actual thing they've checked out so I want to talk to you today we, we, we want to talk about I, I want to, I'm going to use the term and maybe I could have called the sermon this but I want to use the term I want to talk about self-surrender because that's what we're really talking about we're talking about taking yourself and giving yourself to God and surrendering yourself to God and so first of all, we're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about the critical matter of self-surrender. We're going to talk about the contemporary challenge of self-surrender. And we're going to talk about the crucial problem that is solved by self-surrender. So let's talk about the critical matter of self-surrender. He said, as I just talked about, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, they were already in God's image. The lure was to know as God knows and decide without consultation. To decide without consulting God. The the magic fruit, they thought, would give them the ability to think apart from God. That was the ability that it gave them. The ability to think apart from God. Someone uh, with a string of academic uh, credentials attached posted this online a few days ago. Spirituality is not a religion. Being spiritual just means you are in touch with your own divine self. Uh, What is the problem? Why is it so critical that we surrender ourselves to God? 
and that we not just accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. You know, the, 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 the great confession that we preach and the, what we call the sinner's prayer usually takes us to Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. And Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says, If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And somehow we will leapfrog over that first part of that sentence, that phrase, which is confessing that Jesus is Lord. And everybody who read that in that era understood what a Lord was. They were, they were in a society where people who had the primary authority were called Lord. And so they understood that that meant obedience. They understood that that meant surrender to that person that they would call Lord. And we've got to really be careful that we don't move the idea of salvation to some other way of looking at it than making Jesus the Lord of our lives. Um, so let's, let's talk about why it's so critical. Without self-surrender, there's no possibility of inner peace because success is always defined as power and control. Think about it. We don't completely understand um, what happened to Satan in heaven? There are various stories in the Bible. There's a couple where it's talking about earthly rulers, and many people believe that has a dual meaning. I don't really know, but we know. And then in, in, in the Book of Revelation, there's the idea of of, of angels being swept out of heaven. Uh, it says one third of the angels were were swept by the dragon's tail. Many people believe that dragon is Satan. Regardless of how you view it, we know that Satan's deal is power. And control. We know that's his deal. I was uh, I was talking to um, a relative of mine when I was in Texas, and it's not somebody who would uh, probably hasn't read a book in a while. You know, and a, a smart guy, and who's very good at his job and all of that. But I, we, I was talking, and I made the statement over lunch. I said I don't really understand why anybody would want to run the world. That just seems like the worst job in the world to run the world. And so why would someone who has everything already want to now run the world? It seems like a terrible job. And, and, and he says to me, well, have you ever heard of the devil? <laughs> have you ever heard of Satan? And what he was saying, it's a, it, it's a satanic idea to have control. Now, think about it. No matter how you cut it, Satan somehow found a way to be unhappy in heaven. How do you do that? How do you become unhappy in heaven? Uh, he found a way to make Adam and Eve unhappy in Eden. If I could, if I could give you the uh, circumstances of Eden and say you could have the circumstances of Eden right now, you know, gas would be you know dollars seventy five cents a gallon, and um, uh, what? Fifty cents a gallon. All the same. If I could say, you know, I would give you everything your heart desires. You would, you, you, and would you be happy? You'd say, yeah, I think I'd be happy. I think I'd be happy if I had, if, if. Um, what's your favorite temperature? What, Seventy degrees. Seven. What? Seventy. So you're. So you like it? Seventy degrees. Uh, you like a certain amount of money. Well, I mean, what if I could just give you everything you want, everything, every pleasure you want? Well, and you would guarantee me you would be happy, wouldn't you? But Eve had all of that, but Satan found a way to make her unhappy 
with one thing, she didn't have enough power. She had everything she needed, but not enough power. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche said it this way a long time ago, when he, his, his, probably his most important work was the will to power. He said, not necessity, nor desire, nor the love of power. No, he said, the love of power is the demon of men. Let them have everything, health, food, a place to live, entertainment. They are and remain, they, they are and remain unhappy and low-spirited, for the demon waits and waits and will be satisfied. And also in uh, uh, John Milton's Paradise Lost, who he gives voice to the idea of Satan when he says, Farewell, happy fields, where joy forever dwells. Hell horrors, hell internal world, and thou profoundest say, So goodbye to happy heaven and hello horrors of hell, and in my choice to reign is worth ambition, though in hell. And for me to be a ruler is a worthwhile ambition, even though in hell. Better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. It happens to people all the time. People go to a perfectly good church. Perfectly good church. Perfectly good worship. Perfectly fine. Every, every level. Good programs. But will get unhappy because of a concern over power. So that's the first thing. Is you, if, if, if you do not dethrone yourself from its position of power, you will never be happy in life. You will never have joy in life, even though happiness is not the greatest value. The second thing is without self-surrender, there's no real rest because the weight of being is just too overwhelming. It's just too overwhelming because you have now taken on the job of being God. You've taken on the job of defining reality. You've taken on the job of defining what is right, what is wrong. You've taken on the job of defining what is good order and what is bad order. You've taken on the job that only God can handle. Matthew chapter, Micah chapter 6, verse 8 is a great passage. It says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, you're designed to carry the weight of Micah 6.8. You're designed to carry that weight. But you are crushed by the burden of ultimate authority. You will be crushed by that burden. A truly surrendered self is able to discern the burden of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is impressed upon them. The, 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 the exalted self, when I exalt myself, you know the, one of the problems of being an exalted self is we never see a problem that we don't think we are called to solve. When we exalt ourselves, we just never see a problem that we don't think we are called to solve or we don't think we must solve. We cannot put anything in the hands of God. I want you to know it is a great feeling of rest to be able to say there are certain things in my life that I am going to put in the hands of God and they're too heavy for me to carry. You know, Corrie ten Boom tells the story of uh, when she's a little girl and her dad's getting ready to go to catch a train and his suitcase is there and for some reason they get in a discussion about the birds and the bees. And she asks her father, what is sex? And he said, go over and try to pick up that suitcase and I think she said, I can. She may have tried as I remember the story. He said, just like you can't pick up the burden of that suitcase, you're not 
ready to carry the burden of understanding what sex is. God knows there's a bunch of stuff that you don't have the burden, you don't have the strength to carry the burden of that. That's what, that's what you see over and over in Scripture. It says, cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. If you are your own Lord, where are you going to cast your burdens? Where are you going to put those things that you can't control, that you can't understand, that you don't have the answer for, if you are your own God? If you are your own, if the, if the divine self is the divine being who must grasp everything, understand everything, you're going to solve, and I'm telling you what, you're going to solve problems that don't even need to be solved. You're going to solve problems that weren't even a problem until you tried to solve them. And when you tried to solve them, you turned it into a problem. Right? That's happening, and I, I don't want to get into the culture today because I'm not as concerned, and I do am concerned about the culture, but I'm less concerned about this dynamic happening in the culture, which is happening in spades. I'm less concerned about it happening in the culture, and I'm more concerned that it's happening in our own hearts. I'm more concerned that it's happening within the church of Jesus Christ. You know, uh, as I recall, the Lord said he's coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkle. As, as I recall, Jesus said, I come to build my church. He didn't say, I come to build nations, or I didn't come to build this, or build political parties, or commercial concerns, or, or entertainment industries. Jesus said, I came to build my church, and as you know, I love the church. And I want to see the church move beyond the enthronement of self, all right? Work with me, all right? Thanks for the golf clap. I appreciate it. <laughs> I can always count on Diane, man. I could, she's, she's, <laughs> without self-surrender, well, there's no redemption. For a bunch of reasons. The world right now is really suffering. If I, if I can step out into the culture a second, the world right now is really suffering from a lack of redemption, from a lack of redemption, from a lack of forgiveness of sins. I would have, I would have never guessed that we would have moved to the place that there's no forgiveness of sins. But that's where we've moved because that's what happens when you play God. First of all, if you are God, you can't define sin. That, that, that's the, 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 the redemption that God gives is, is because he defines sin. With, without self-surrender, there's no redemption because there can be no fixed definition of sin. There can be no impartial judge and there can be no sacrificial offering to bring atonement. When you become Lord, how are you going to define sin, die for your own sins, and be alive to be a help and a part of the community of God in the world? I tell you, we used to sing that old song, He is Lord. I wish we could sing it again. He is risen from the dead. He is Lord. And when we would sing that song, people would raise their hands all over the place, and they would raise their hands, and they would sing, He is Lord. And there was, there was a release when we would sing that song. There was a release. Why was there a release? Because we are giving up the, the, the unbearable burden of being our own Lord. We're giving up the unbearable burden of being the, the director of our own lives. We're giving up the unbearable burden of trying to define our own sin, 
for, uh, pay the sacrifice for our own sin and rid ourselves of our own sin. Uh, Jesus came as the deliverer. Everywhere Jesus went, he delivered people from demonic powers all over Jerusalem because they could not deliver themselves. Because, because self does not have the power, the redemptive power to deliver itself from sin. We must have an outside source. We must have, an out, we must have a transcendent source of defining sin. We must have a tra- transcendent source of, of, of calling out and judging, impartially judging our sin. And we must have a transcendent source of paying, of paying the price of atonement for our sins. You cannot possibly bear the burden of your own redemption. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9.22. So let's talk about the contemporary challenge of self-surrender. As I, as I said, this problem of self-deification, self-exaltation, self-centeredness did not start in the culture. It started in the Garden of Eden. It started in our own hearts. And it's a problem that every child that comes into your family, like the little girl in the video, has the sin. We call it, we call it a sin nature. Theologians call it the original sin. But we can't ignore culture. You know, I talk a lot about the men of Issachar. They understood the times and they knew what to do. So it's very helpful to understand the times. For one thing, for one thing, if, if you're a parent, you're 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 handing your children to some degree, even if you bring them to a Christian school, you're still handing your children to the culture. Like it or not, the culture is helping you raise your children. And so the directions of culture have an impact on us. The contemporary challenge of self-surrender is I think it's um Three, three, threefold. Number one is we live in a world where uh, we, we live in a world where natural phenomena was, which was once a, a, is no longer attributed to God's angels, spirits, and demons. There was a time when natural phenomena was attributed to all, all natural phenomena was attributed to God, to God's to God, uh, the big guy, God, uh, or uh, little gods, idols, and uh, mythical gods. And it was attributed to uh, angels, demons, and spirits, right? Uh, let's use lightning, for instance. Uh, lightning would often, uh, in, in, in the Middle Ages and all, it would strike churches. Now, because they didn't know, they didn't have science at their, and didn't understand the natural world, uh, they didn't think about the fact that the reason it struck the church is because it was the highest point in the community, and in many cases it had a big metal object <laughs> at the top. So they would attribute a lightning strike, which would often burn the church down, to either the judgment of God because the church was lukewarm, or not as it should be, or they would attribute to an attack of Satan. And uh, Ben Franklin got the bright idea of creating a, a lightning rod, which he put, they would put on the top of the church steeple, and it would attract the lightning, 
And so, miraculously, Ben Franklin defeated Satan and God. <laughs> and there are many, many examples like that where people believed. Well, the, the truth was, and, and I wish we had more time to talk about this, but, but we don't. The truth is, the world was never as enchanted as they thought it was. It never was as enchanted. So God wasn't, you know, and, and it was, it's the way many people read the Bible today. Some people read the Bible like this today. If they read of something happening one time, like, like for instance, if you, if you read, the, there was this time in the Bible when God sent a massive hailstorm in, in, I believe it was the Amalekites, that he destroyed with, with massive hailstorm. And so some people read the Bible like this, well, that means every hailstorm is, is an act of God. No, no, God God acts out of his sovereign will. And, and, you know, I was talking to my father-in-law. We were having prayer the other day. And, and he, 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 he mentioned something to me because I've been preaching about Abraham. And he said, you know, I was studying Abraham. And God showed up to speak to Abraham 11 times in 100 years. And some of you think you haven't heard from God often enough. <laughs> but... You would, you would think, because Adam, Abraham's called a friend of God, that, that God was just in his house every day. You know? But it, 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 so we, we, invent, we invented a, a world of enchantment that really didn't exist. That God, you know, the reason we call miracles miracles is because they're not normals. If they happened all the time, we'd call them normals. We call them miracles because they are, they are the exceptions to the rule. Can God strike you with lightning? I believe he can. Is he likely to? No. Do you deserve it? Of course. <laughs> then I've, been, I've just been looking for that Ananias and Sapphira miracle. I just, I, for years, I've just been wondering, why did they get struck down when I've had people in my church do far worse? <laughs> Where is this magical God who, who kills people when they lie about what they gave in the offering? <laughs> See, we want to make, it's part of the Western rational mind that we want to make, we want to make formulas out of everything. I think, you know, I, I'm... I, I can't get off on this, but Solomon said time and chance happens to every man. Everything that happens in your life. <laughs> you know, I told you about the, the nurse at the hospital who said to me, her brother's a priest, and he said to her, some people say that God won't put on you more than you can bear, but that's not true. <laughs> because it implies that every single thing that happens to you today is an act of God. And it just never was. I, 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 let's move on. We no longer live in a world... Uh, here's the second thing. We no longer live in a world where we look to religion, holy scripture, family, and other established institutions for our ethics, morals, and values. I don't need to say a lot about that. I'll just lay it out there. We don't look, we don't, we don't look at the, the great institutions, especially the church and the family, as the source of our moral values. In fact, we, we do the opposite, and I'll point that out in a minute. The third thing is a really important one, and I happen to know Pastor Dennis and I have talked about what he's going to preach on in two weeks, and so he's going to expand on this point. And, the, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a, 
a term that came along a few years ago with a Harvard professor and, and other sociologists have picked it up. It's called expressive individualism. Expressive individualism has replaced the spirit world and defined social authority structure as our, sources, our source of guidance. Let me say that again. Expressive individualism has replaced the spirit world and well-defined social authority structures as sources of guidance. Think about the slogans that we commonly use. Works for me. Go find yourself. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. You be you. Do you. Follow your passions and work at what you love. You know, I was thinking about that. Work, do what you love. Work at what you love. Um, and and I, I, I thought, you know, if you, if you had a farm, it could be, because we've even taught it with our spiritual gift teaching. If you owned a farm and you have all these tasks on a farm, uh, I don't know, my father-in-law, he'll be in the next service, I think, so I could ask him. He was a farmer. I, I wonder if the farmer, if you ever had anyone, worker, who loved shoveling manure. I think if I met somebody who loved shoveling manure, I would get them psychological help. <laughs> but somebody's got to shovel it. So somebody has to do something they don't love in order for the world to work. I love my job, but there's about, there's about half of the things I do I don't love that are in my job, that if I don't do them, I won't get to do this that I love to do. So, anyway, I, I probably shouldn't have gone off on that. <laughs> Expressive individualism, Carl Truman said, is that each of us finds our meaning by giving expression to our own feelings and desires. Yuval Levin, in his uh, essay, The Fractured Republic, said the capacity of individuals to define the terms of their own existence by defining their personal identities is increasingly equated with liberty and the meaning of some of our basic rights. Ellen DeGeneres, who just after 19 years uh, retired from her show this uh, past week, here's her closing statement. She said, I've said before, but I will say it again. If I've done anything in the past 19 years, I hope I've inspired you to be yourself. You're true authentic self. That, she states, and I'm not criticizing Ellen DeGeneres or picking on her, but she states that is her most important contribution is to teach you to be yourself. Now, we'll, 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 is that biblical? Is, is God's greatest goal in your life to teach you to be yourself? We'll see. Mark Sayers in The Disappearing Church lists several assumptions of this idea of expressive individualism. He said, the highest good is individual freedom. This is what it teaches, and this is what permeates the world that we live in. The highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. Number two, traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped deconstructed or destroyed. Number three, the world will inevitably 
improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. Technology will move us toward utopia. Number four, the primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. Any deviation from this ethic of tolerance is dangerous and must not be tolerated. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> Forms of e external authority are rejected and personal authenticity is lauded. You know, 84% of Americans and 66% of churchgoers in one survey said that enjoying oneself is the highest goal of life. Now, Westminster Confession, that we used to quote, said the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Juxtapose that against what we've done, and we've replaced it, even in the church, by acting as if the purpose of, of life is to feel happy, and I will be happier if I can escape these bad feelings of guilt and shame. The church, therefore, is there to lift my guilt and shame and teach me how to leave the services and chase my dreams. As I've said, I'm not going to qualify everything because we certainly believe in happiness. Happiness is a worthy goal in life. We certainly believe in the idea of chasing your dreams. And if you can possibly make your living by doing what you love, by all means, do that as much as you can. However, you haven't solved the crucial problem by pursuing happiness. You haven't solved your crucial problem by pursuing the desires of yourself. So that brings us to the last point. The crucial problem solved by self-surrender. You know, both uh, psychological literature and contemporary Christian teaching teaches self-surrender. In fact, there's some, there's some amazing literature and psychological literature on self-surrender. Some really good stuff, by the way. It's stuff, stuff that will really help you. You know, it's, it's about letting go. Letting go of things that are stressing you out. Letting go of things you can't control. That's, that's some, there's a lot of truth there, by the way. But, but the problem is, the problem occurs when the goal becomes, when, when personal happiness becomes the primary goal. Now, here's the problem. If I come to God, and my coming to God and my accepting Christ, and my primary goal for accepting Christ, and my primary goal for going to the waters of baptism, and my primary goal for signing up for this thing called Christianity, if my primary goal is because it makes me happy, here's a big problem with that. God will someday ask you to do something that won't make you happy. I will guarantee it. I will guarantee you, someday... God will ask an, an act of obedience or faith or endurance. Something will come into your life and the word you will get from God will not be in joy. It will be another word that starts with E. And it will be the word endure. And you will not be happy with that word. So it's, you, you will not be able to sustain your Christian life because God will not always make you happy. Amen? Uh, secondly, 
It implies that the only negative impact of Adam and Eve's rebellion in choosing to develop their own divine selves was emotional and psychological. So that was the only thing. The, 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 the fall, all the fall did to them, according to this way of looking at it, it created psychosis, neurosis, phobias, and depression. And so fundamentally, uh, they just needed counseling. You with me? Adam and Eve rebelled against God, made themselves, tried to make themselves their own God. And if all you get out of that is th- they, were, uh, they were now uh, psychologically messed up and needed um, a, a, you know, so psychotropic medication or, or therapy or, um, or, or some other diagnosis, which I'm not, I'm not uh, denying that there are those diagnoses and there are those problems, and, those, and, and I'm certainly not against counseling. I'm not against uh, uh, psychi- psychi- psychiatric medication. I'm not against any of those things. But when you make that what happened to them, you are, you are missing what really happened to them. But here's what happened to them. But before, before they chose to put themselves on the throne, God was sitting on the throne of their affections. And God had made them. Now listen to this. Oh, don't miss this. God had made them the king and queen of Eden. And they surrendered their authority to be the king and queen of Eden, Eden to the snake, to the serpent. And, and we know this is what happened because when we go to the New Testament, and first of all, we stop at the temptation of Christ in Luke chapter 4, verse 5. It says the devil showed Jesus, showed him in an instant, all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given. Notice what Satan said. Notice what the devil said. It has been given to me. And Jesus didn't say, you're wrong. Because it was true. And we we have this affirmed later in John chapter 14 verse 30 when Jesus said the prince of the world is coming but he has no hold over me. Who was supposed to be the prince of the world? Adam and Eve. God gave them dominion in the earth. And then you go to 1 John chapter 5 19 it says the whole world is under the power of the evil one. I'm telling you, something more significant happened in Genesis 3 than that Adam and Eve just got traumatized. Something more, something more serious happened than they just became mentally and psychologically traumatized. I'm sure they were, by the way, but that was secondary. What was, what, what was, what was, what was more to the point is they had totally changed their relationship with God. And they had totally changed their relationship with each other. And they had totally corrupted their relationship with the world. But our self-surrender, here's what self-surrender will do to you. It will reposition you to once again begin to impose God's beauty and God's order on all things. What do you think we're doing around here, Bethany Community Church? What are we doing when we love on each other? What do you think we're doing when we give ourselves to the community? What do you think we're doing? We are reimagining God's order because we're taking ourselves on the throne and we're putting God back on the throne and we're obeying God and we're trying to serve without reward and we're trying to serve without making our happiness the main thing and the big thing. We are, we are once again acting like children of God. 
Our self-surrender repositions us to once again impose the beauty of God's order on all things. It replaces the authority of the serpent, the disinformation, the misinformation of the serpent. I want you to know the, 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 the disinformation and misinformation started in Genesis chapter 3. It didn't start in 2016. <laughs> it, it replaces the authority, the disinformation, the misinformation of the serpent's lies and replaces it. Listen to me, friends, with the loving, powerful authority, knowledge, and wisdom of your Creator. You will have now have skills to create intimacy and community with the family of God if you choose to cultivate them. You will have the joy of sins forgiven and the security of eternal life and access to the Holy Spirit and all the gifts and revelations when you read the Scripture. You will receive a pair of lenses to view the world with compassion and creativity instead of fear and judgment. You have been given the gift of a way of life. That's what, what surrender of self. It's, it's receiving the gift of a way of life. You've received a book. This book, I, I wanted to bring a real Bible. This one's been torn up a little bit. But I wanted to bring a real Bible up here and just hold it up to you. You receive a book, a love letter from God that has the wisdom of the ages contained in it. You don't need, you know, when, when Jesus was tempted by the Satan in the wilderness, Jesus did, did not respond one single time with, I think or I feel. Every single time that Jesus responded to Satan, he responded with, it is written. Because Jesus had not made himself the ascended earthly Jesus, the man's Jesus, the son of man Jesus, had not made himself his own God. He said, I don't do anything except my Father tells me to do it. And tell me, was there anybody more liberated than Jesus? Was there anybody more free? Was there anybody more like what you would like to be? When, when Jay was a, a kid, I, 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 re, I was in his, in his room one day, his very messy room, disaster room, total disaster. But I found a note he had written, I'm becoming too much like myself. <laughs> I thought, that is profound. That is profound. The Bible says that we have been transformed. We haven't, yes. Over the, over, the, over the span of your life, I would put money on the idea that if you will follow Jesus, if you will surrender yourself to Jesus, you will be a happier person. I would put money on that. But that's not the goal. That's not the primary goal. The primary goal is that I will be a creator of God's order a restorer of God's order in my own life, in my own home, in my own church, in my own community. Go, that's what it means when it says go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's what it means when it says go, because when you go into all the world and preach the gospel, you are, you are, you are disseminating an order that has been lost. And, and you are a part of God's plan to restore the world back to what it was in the Garden of Eden, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. I want you to know when, Jesus, when God made the covering for Adam and Eve, 
he was, he was giving us a foreshadow of the covering that would be made for us on the cross of Calvary when Jesus died for the sins of mankind. And Jesus enacted what it looked like to surrender self. He enacted what it looked like to surrender self, and he shows us what happens when you surrender self because as we read the scripture, it gave access, it gave Jesus access to defeat the serpent once and for all. And that's what I want for every single one of you. I hope today that we're able to really take in what he's talking about. And maybe some of us need to stay for next service and listen to it again or, or get that podcast and listen to it and allow God to maybe realign in our mind. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to surrender myself? What is the goal of the practice of my faith? Is this about making my life better? Is this about making me happier? To step outside of that idea is, to, is a huge departure from really all of the messaging that we get from the world right now. It, it's completely upside down world that, that, it, that is not the pursuit of our faith is our personal happiness. But what we know and the promise that we have of our God is that he has our best interest at heart and he is the only one who can bring us true joy, true peace and true freedom, which is so much better than happiness. Amen. Let's stand in this room. I'm going to pray over us, and then we'll get you to your Memorial Day weekend. God, I thank you so much for the church. I thank you, God, for this group of humans that you brought us together as a family, and that that is just the initial entrance into this idea that we have to surrender ourselves to be able to work together, to be able to bring in all of our individual personalities into this place, we have to begin to surrender ourselves and lay, or lay down who we are in order to be made one. I thank you, God, that you've given us your word as a lamp to our feet, that you've shown us who Jesus is as he lived as a man so we can be transformed into the image of Christ as the word calls us. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.